We have to continually be jumping off cliffs and developing our wings on the way down. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Hello, my dear shit shows. How the hell are you doing? Do you guys ever talk back to me? I was wondering that the other day. Because I talk back to my podcast. When I listen to podcasts, I talk back to the host. So I'm curious, are y'all chatting out loud back with me? (laughs) I hope so. Uh, I'm doing well sitting here in my fancy ass podcast studio known as my closet next to my cat's litter box. And this week has been good. I've been I've been in a bit of withdrawal with the um, the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial is on break this week. And I have become rather obsessed with this trial. Um, It is like adult child gone wild. It's so fascinating to me. There's so many different adult child themes in play, and I'm a reality TV whore as it is, so I've just been eating it up. Let me know if you guys are into it as well. So today we are diving deep with Saskia Lightstar, and Saskia popped up in my Instagram DMs and left me the following voice memo. Hello, lovely lady. I just wanted to say a big, fat, juicy thank you all the way from Wimbledon Common in London, where I'm currently walking my dog. Uh, I found Al-Anon about three months ago, and then from there I discovered ACA, and it has already transformed my life. So on my walk today, I thought, "Mm, why not just Google adult child podcasts, and there you were. And what a kindred you are. I love the profanity, um, sincerity, open heart, all of it. I think you're fucking awesome. And today's, uh, the one I listened to, the under earner, just really struck a chord with me. I got a worldwide publishing deal with Hay House and I still feel like a worthless piece of shit. So yeah, I've still got a long way to go in my recovery. But... I know from now on, whenever I walk my dog, I'm going to be listening to you. So the book that she's referring to, it's called The Cancer Misfit, A Guide to Navigating Life After Treatment. But in all honesty, it could really be retitled to uh, The Adult Child Misfit, A Guide to Navigating Life After Realizing You're an Adult Child. But this book is about surviving and thriving and rediscovering oneself post-cancer. And Saskia talks about her realization, a very painful realization, that she was not the same Saskia that she had been prior to cancer. And she talks about this moment of realization as the cancer cliff. She says it's the cliff from where you look at the long drop between your experience with cancer treatment and the daunting prospect of what comes next. I spent nearly three years standing at the edge of the cancer cliff, too scared to jump. 
I was too afraid to take the plunge, to let go of who I used to be, and to soar towards who I had become. That's why I wrote this book, to give you the wings you need so that you can truly feel safe about stepping off the ledge of what you know to reach the new life you deserve. So I think we have our own cliff. We have the adult child cliff. The moment that we realize that we are adult children, the moment that we realize that we aren't who we thought we were, that we have been operating through life rooted in this false self and faulty programming from childhood. But so many of us are too afraid to jump off the damn cliff. We know it's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. And we don't think that we can handle it. We've also become comfortable with being very, very uncomfortable. And I know that there are many of you listening right now who have one damn foot dangling over the cliff. And part of my intention in creating this podcast was to encourage you to jump off the cliff. <laughs> Actually, I, I'm trying to uh, forcedly push you off the damn cliff. Yes, it is going to be hard. Yes, it's going to be painful. Yes, you're going to feel some shit that you don't want to feel. You're going to have to talk about some shit that you don't want to talk about. But the gift that comes from this, guys, is truly the best gift one could ever receive. You know, just like a cancer survivor is granted the gift of life, so are we adult children. We are granted with the opportunity to unearth and live as our true selves, to live in our potential, and to live a meaningful and fulfilling life. So my question to you is, which one of you guys out there right now is going to jump off the damn cliff today? First, I uh, threatened y'all's lives <laughs> if you don't give me a five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. And now I'm trying to, you know, literally push you off cliffs. But before Saskia, uh, they we're having a workshop with Mr. Fix Your Picker on May 18th. It's a week from uh, tomorrow, and there's still a few spots left. This is going to be a little bit more Q&A. If you have any relationship, dating, any sort of questions, you can ask away to Mr. Fix Your Damn Picker. Uh, what else? Join the damn Patreon, okay? That is where I host weekly support groups three times a week. Patreon.com slash adult child. I want to give a shout out to our newest Patreon members, our newest cliff jumpers. So thank you, thank you, thank you to Daria, Emily, Carly, Jackie, Jesse, Gina, Danielle, Daniel, Stephen, Christina, Jamie, Chris, Sarah, Justice, Courtney, Adriana, and Barb. You guys are the shit. You can also follow me on Instagram and TikTok at AdultChildPod. And of course, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. If you have not done so, guys, it's time to jump off the damn cliff and give me the damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. Well, it is my pleasure 
to introduce quite a shit show, uh, a friend and adult child and a Hay House published author, Miss Saskia Lightstar. But what is it? Lichtenstein? What? Let's not. What's this Lightstar bullshit? <laughs> okay, it's hello everybody. It's Saskia Lichtenstein, but I I chose Lightstar because that's the translation of my name, and I thought becoming an author it just was a lot easier for people to deal with. I think so. I just want everybody to know too. My last, I've said this, but I think I've said this before on the podcast. But for anybody who's maybe didn't hear that episode, my last name is really Ashley. People, this is not a stage name. It's not my middle name. It's my real name. So the Cancer Misfit is the name of your book. Well, first of all, can I hear you? I was thinking, what if we did this interview and I spoke in a in a British accent, and you spoke in an American accent for the whole time. Oh my god, I would I would like love that. Oh my god. Oh, that's pretty good. I don't think it is, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> so briefly explain why you wrote your book, and then I have some questions to kind of dive into from there. And we're just going to be going all around the damn place because there's a lot to talk about. So the cancer miss. Um, okay. So I was a superficial party girl airhead. And then I got diagnosed with breast cancer. This was when I was 39. Yep. I partied later on. Um, and then <laughs> I lost my hair obviously and had my tit cut off and suddenly wasn't that person that I was before being diagnosed with breast cancer and once I'd been through the treatment and the doctor said go back to normal I just was like well where do I fit in the world now I think this is true of most people that go through any kind of trauma whether it be cancer divorce bereavement lockdown um, you come out the other side and you kind of feel like I'm not that person I was before, but I'm not quite sure who I am. And you feel like a bit of a misfit. So that is why I called it the cancer misfit. Because also I think people don't want to be called a cancer survivor. It's like you're in this perpetual state of struggle. Mm -hmm. And I'm not. Well, I would venture to say that the person that you were before you were diagnosed with cancer wasn't even who you truly were anyways. 100%. That's why actually for me, and I know it's not the same for everyone, but I do believe this is true of many a trauma. Sometimes the hardest things we go through are necessary and the best things that ever happened to us. And it was only having my looks peeled away from me mm. that I stopped being superficial airhead. And I started developing a real relationship with myself and actually fell in love with myself. So one of the things that I've read in your book and also in the articles is you talk about when you, when you first get your diagnosis, and I'd like for you to speak on that, but you talk about how you just kind of initially go into this, you kick into this survival mode. Now I'll be completely honest. Like I have a great fear. I were to get sick. If I were to get a cancer diagnosis, I'm always impressed with people and maybe it would be the case for me, but for me, I don't know. I just have this feeling and I don't know if it's because of I'm an adult child or what, but 
I just feel like I would spiral out into like a constant state of hypervigilance and have it just like consume me. Like the thought of having to wait for like test results or this or that, like, I feel like it would be really hard for me to not just go into a place of, of doom and gloom. Like, I feel like it would be very difficult for me to be optimistic. Oh, wow. Um, Well, I think it's like when you're walking happily in the forest and then suddenly a bear jumps out at you, you don't stop and go, oh, my God, this is terrifying. What am I going to do? It's the end of the world. A bear jumped out at me. You just instinctually run. And I think with a cancer diagnosis, and I think this is how we're built as humans in order to survive big shit is that you sort of go into automatic pilot. You kind of just switch into survival mode and you kind of just go through the process numb, like going through the chemo, going through the mastectomy, going through radiation. I don't really remember feeling anything because I just was like, all right, well, I don't want to die. This is stage three. I'll do whatever they tell me to. But then when the doctor says it's done, that's when it switches back to manual and suddenly you get hit with the tsunami of what just happened and I think again that's like when we have to go through divorce proceedings or when we have to go through I don't know whatever big major thing in order to survive it it's like we go numb but as soon as we kind of got past the initial hell suddenly you get overwhelmed so that was it was the year or two years after that I fell into a deep depression of doom and gloom. Mm-hmm. Uh, leading up to that, did you have a fear of getting sick or a fear of death? I'd never, ever thought about it. Mm-hmm. I literally never, ever thought about it. And, and until literally I went up to that appointment, not thinking I was going to be diagnosed with cancer and her saying, look, you've got stage three. We need to cut that out mm-hmm. and in the next week and you're going to lose all your hair and did it. And it was like, wait, what, what it was? Yeah. At that point in time, you, you had not attended, had you attended Al-Anon at that point in time? No, I, I went into rehab in 2007 for an eating disorder and self-harming, but I, I think the family secret of dysfunction and alcoholism was such a secret that I didn't know I didn't, yeah, I didn't even think about it for some reason. I'm wondering what the experience would have been like had you mm, maybe had the awareness already that you were an adult child, or I almost in a way wonder, like the fact that you were oblivious, like ignorance is bliss a little bit. I'm just wondering how that made the experience different for you as opposed to, cause yeah, just kind of being rather living your life very dissociated up until that point, right? Well, I was living my life like an, just an adult child, just knee deep in all the laundry list traits. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I know why I got cancer because when I was in, in my eating disorder, I always used to say, and I meant it, I would rather get cancer than get fat. Mm. I said it all the time. And and that was the truth. Mm. Like I was so obsessed with that, with my body 
And it was almost like I was saying to the universe, you know, I do believe in the law of attraction. And, and, and if you keep saying something like that, then you're giving the universe the wrong messages. Mm. I didn't get, well, I actually ended up getting fat from the uh, steroids on the chemotherapy. <laughs> so I was bald and fat. <laughs> and, and without a boob. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was sexy. It was a really good look for like a year or two. I looked super hot. <laughs> How was that experience? Horrific. I covered all the mirrors in my house. I couldn't look at myself because my relationship to myself was so superficial and all about physicality. I had no deeper relationship with myself. I I based all my self-worth on my physical appearance, on my hair and my cleavage were my two favorite things about myself. (laughs) Like, seriously, my higher power was saying, dude, you are so fucked up. You are so lost. I'm going to take the two things that you think define you so that you can really find out what defines you. What did life look like when you got your diagnosis? You were married? Uh, was I married? No, I'd, I, I'd already had one divorce. I was in a relationship. All of the men I dated fabulous men but all completely inappropriate for me mm-hmm. um I, I say fabulous my last ex-husband was a twat <laughs> like honestly they were just I I don't my last ex was a alcoholic and a fuck up but generally speaking I went I just chose broken what's the one on the laundry list when you mistake love for pity yeah I dated those Mm-hmm. pretty much um I didn't because I had no self-worth I never went out with somebody that I believed was you know somebody I fancied or I really wanted to go out with I thought would never go out with me so I always just went out with somebody who was interested in me and said they love me and I was like okay I love you too let's have sex and date kind of vibe if that makes <laughs> any sense it makes complete sense It was completely unemotional. I don't think I've ever had a vulnerable romantic relationship, Mm -hmm. but now I'm, I've, you know, now I've just really had such a, been walking the spiritual path for so long and had done so much inner healing that I'm looking forward to possibly navigating that. That's definitely the next step in my healing, but I'm also very happy on my own. So there's no panic. Yeah. I want to talk about dating later. Um, so let's, let's go back to your childhood. Some, do you know what your ACE score is? What's that? I'll pull it up. You should know about it. So it is the adverse childhood experiences. I'll pull it up. Okay. So let me pull this up. It's kind of like goes into what you experienced as a child. And the more yeses you have, there's 10 of them, the more that you have, the more mental health and physical health problems that you will experience as an adult. How exciting. I know. So one, did you feel that you didn't have enough to eat, had to wear dirty clothes or had no one to protect or take care of you? Definitely not. Um, Did you lose a parent through divorce, abandonment, death, or other reason? Yes. Yes. Your dad, which we'll talk about. Um, Did you live with anyone who was mentally ill? Depressed. Depressed and attempted suicide. Yes. Okay. So check, check. <laughs> uh, did you live with somebody who had a drinking problem? Yes. 
You did. And prescription drugs, yes. yes. And drugs, actually. Yes, all of the above. All of the above. Did you uh did your parents or adults in your home ever hit you, punch or cause okay, sorry, to each other, not to you? Was there violence between your your parents? No. Okay. My brother was violent towards me, but my parents yeah. weren't. Did you live with anyone who went to jail or prison? No, correct. No. Um, did your parent or adults ever swear at you, insult you, or put you down? Daily. <laughs> uh, did you or parent or adult ever hit you? I mean, if your brother did, we'll say yes. Yeah. Uh, brother, did yeah. you feel that no one in your family loved you or thought you were special? At times, yes, absolutely. Did you experience unwanted sexual conduct contact? No. Okay. So you have a six uh, mm. out of 10. That's pretty high, my dear. <laughs> Is it? I thought yeah. I did really well then. I was like, oh, maybe I'm not an adult child now. Woo-hoo! No. If you have, I think it's like over, over three. Two. It's not great. <laughs> Most people have at least one. I think a third of people have three or more. So six is kind of a lot. Wow. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, I knew I was fucked up, so it's fine. Yeah. It was really interesting. The way that they found out about it was actually through, um, it was related to like an obesity clinic. They were, these doctors were asking these patients who were dropping out of the program who weren't completing it. And what they found was that a lot of them had had, um, had experienced sexual abuse and that, you know, part of the reason that they didn't want to stay thin or subconsciously was because, you know, the heavier that they were. Yeah, exactly. And so then that led them to, um, to kind of do this study. It was called the ACE study. It was in the late nineties. They, I think they tested, there was over, it was like over 17,000 people. And it was like a real landmark study that showed the effects of, um, you know, experiencing childhood, um, neglect and, and alcoholism. And finally it's kind of getting the attention that it deserves. So, you know, it's crazy because it hasn't had the attention it deserves. And I, and even if you Google and try and get information about being an adult child, there's still pretty much fuck all out there. Mm-hmm. I like this whole time and I'm frustrated this whole time. I couldn't understand what was wrong with me. I felt innately wrong and broken and damaged. And I tried everything, you know, I did this, I took my spiritual practice, I did meditation, I did um, all these different courses and workshops, experimented and tried everything. And all along, all I had to do was find out that <laughs> there's this thing child. called being an adult child, because that's all it boils down to. It's like, if I had known this 20, 30 years ago, I wouldn't have just, oh, it's so frustrating that there's not enough about it. And I feel like that's your quest now to, because you know what, this isn't just about addicts. This is about probably I'd say the population (laughs) at least. Yeah. yeah, We've all had dysfunctional childhoods, not necessarily maybe addiction or alcoholism, but it, it, we bring it with us and it fucks us up and we need to undo it. So prior to you finding out that you were an adult child, Yeah. What was your perception of your upbringing? I blamed, I just thought it was me, Mm. to be honest. Um, I thought, and also I didn't have much to compare it to. So financially, I came from a a wealthy family. So I felt 
almost guilt and shame to complain about anything because I knew that people didn't have the opportunities Mm-hmm. and the life that I had so that I've carried that fucking guilt mm-hmm. of where I've come from mm-hmm. um I just always blamed it on me I always blamed it yeah or or I blamed it on my parents and just thought they were terrible parents but it was always about pointing the finger it was always about blaming it was always about controlling it was always I don't know I didn't have any perspective on it until I went to an Al-Anon meeting and somebody said the word adult child. And I was like, that's me, man. And then I looked on the web, you know, ACA. And then I just, I was like, I'm home. Hello. These are my people. It's such a special moment. It really is, man. Cause you know, finally all the craziness just fit into place. And I have to say for me, because I've been on a spiritual path for so long, that was just like the last key to make everything just fit into place. Mm -hmm. And now I'm just reveling in doing the step work and and healing that part of myself, you know? Yeah, I was, um, I'm going to make a video this week about common misdiagnosis C's, how do you even say that? Misdiagnoses for, I don't even know how the fuck to say that, but for, for complex trauma, both misdiagnosis and overlooking, you know, ADHD, bipolar, borderline anxiety, depression. Yeah. And the thing is, is it could be co-occurring. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's a misdiagnosis. It could be overlooked that people could have those as well as the complex PTSD, but yeah, you can treat those co-occurring disorders like with medication or whatever, but all it really is doing is just like putting a Band-Aid on a wound, you know? But I think even underneath the complex trauma is the fact that you're an adult child as a consequence. And I think all practitioners, whether they're holistic, whether they're um, conventional medicine, they should know about this because I think this should be an integral part of anybody's healing, whether they do suffer from PTSD, anxiety, um, ADHD, whatever it is, to at least have a look at this area. And I mean, and also like the loving parent handbook from ACA should be in every school curriculum (laughs) because really we all fucking need to know how to parent ourselves and love ourselves. And if we got taught that shit in like our first 15 years of life, I'm sorry, I'm swearing. So I love it. I love it with a British accent too. keep it going girl. Um, But I just think the 12 steps and the loving parent handbook, at school, and then you'd have no more screwed up people, I'm convinced. <laughs> okay, let's start writing that bill. Yeah, I don't think we're going to get very far. Well, you know what? So complex PTSD is not in the DSM-5 here. So that's like the mental health kind of handbook or whatever of disorders. But for whatever the equivalent is over in Europe, it is included in that. I know that. So maybe you could have a better shot of us getting that approved over there. <laughs> um, so what is your earliest, earliest childhood memory? You know what? I'm one of those adult children that a doesn't have any memories much. Mm-hmm. And I know my memories are not very realistic. I, I remember one to 10 being bliss, happy families, which according to my brother and my mother wasn't the case but it was to me and then 
my dad went on business and he died. Um, he got a brain aneurysm because he had a very heavy coke habit because he was like a, one of the wolves of Wall Street in London. He was a trader. Um, and then two days later, my mother's mother killed herself. And so every, I just, I literally overnight went from just really normal, happy family in my brain to total extreme opposite. And obviously my mum had just lost her husband and her mother in two days. So she was, I suppose, preoccupied with surviving herself. You were 10? Yeah. And I basically just had to try and somehow, which I didn't, process the whole thing by myself. And I just didn't. And I think I just, that's when I started my fucked upness. Do you remember, how, where were you? How did you find out that your dad had died? Um. I don't remember that. I know that he was in the hospital in Switzerland where he was on business and my mum went to be with him and me and my brother were begging her to let us come. But apparently he had so many tubes and he was in a coma that she wouldn't let us come. And my brother was like 13 and I remember him trying to phone the airport and sound like a grown up so he could book his flights. Mm. And then my Nana, which was my mother's mother, turned up at the door to see if we were okay. And my brother, I guess, because he was going through so much, told her to fuck off. And that night she committed suicide. Holy shit. Yeah, man, heavy days. What was your relationship like with your dad? Oh, I was, he was my absolute planet. I idolized him. I could sense when his car came in the driveway. I mean, it's been 38 years. I can still feel the feeling of his work shirt when I used to give him a cuddle and the smell of his aftershave. Like, I don't think I've ever recovered because nobody, nobody really sat me down. I didn't get any kind of counseling. I, I didn't want to go to the funeral, so I wasn't made to. So I guess I didn't get any closure that way. That shit fucks a kid up. You know, I just had this amazing dad and then suddenly one day I didn't. And then, my mum was having an affair with this Japanese weird dude who moved in six months later when my dad's body was still warm. Um, he's lovely. They've been together now 38 yes. years. Wow. But at the time, it was like my dad was this loud New York Jew, you know, and he was like, he smoked 40 shatan filterless cigarettes a day and he had these pool parties were all this debauchery and coke and nakedness and then suddenly there's this weird Japanese Mr. Miyagi dude that doesn't say a <laughs> word doesn't talk like nothing it's like he essentially just I probably had about five proper conversations with him in about 38 years I understand him now so that's okay it's like living with Mr. Miyagi from the Karate Kids you know Mr. Miyagi doesn't say anything unless it's very important I accept that now, but I think also at 10 years old, that was just a bit of a head fry. And I think my mum just, I don't know when alcoholism started. If it started when I was, it must have started when I was one to 10, because I always remember being screamed at all the time, either loved or screamed at, but there was never in between. So if I walked in her room to see her, she either loved me or hated me. Mm -hmm. But I thought that was normal until... 
much, much later on. Until this conversation we're having right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not so long ago. But then I think because um, I don't know what her reasons were, but she carted me off to boarding school when I was 11. And just boarding school was just revolting. Like old, like, like, like you see in the films, like those old haunted English castle looking places with bars on the windows, like evil Hogwarts. Evil Hogwarts, okay. Yeah, like 12 people. Uh, their dorms were so much nicer than ours. I think they had petitions. We just had 12 beds in a room. And we used to get canes on, I don't even know. Cane, doesn't cane mean stone? No, we know what you mean. Okay. Um, yeah, we used to get caned with a stick if we, uh, on our asses, bare bums, if we didn't do as we were told. And it was brutal. And that, the fear of abandonment and rejection, you know, being shoved on a train for four hours to go there. And yeah, that was pretty revolting. Did you go through the rest of your schooling in, at boarding school? Yeah, she moved me when I was 16 to this drama college, which was, again, boarding school. But again, it was like the opposite of the one I'd just been to. So the one I went to from 11 was all girls, very strict, in the middle of nowhere. Then suddenly I'm sent to this drama college um, with all the rejects from all the other sort of boarding schools um, and everyone shagging everyone all the teachers are shagging students everyone's snorting coke it was like it was just the most debaucherous I was having a relationship with my drama teacher when I was 17 um for a long time I was like oh look at me I'm so cool I slept with my drama teacher but in truth he saw I was very insecure and I had low self-worth and he was a predator and he and he totally took advantage of me and there was no love there I mean just, I don't know. For me, I had, I gave my body way too freely because I was desperate for affirmation, for love, for the, even just for that nurturing moment after the sex. I just mm-hmm. now, as the person I am today, when I think about how many men I let penetrate me, I'm like, what the fuck? This body is sacred. Anyone that gets to penetrate this altar of amazingness, <laughs> I'm going to choose that person very fucking wisely, you know? But then it was just any Tom, Dick or Harry or my drama teacher. Yeah. <laughs> this hole's available. <laughs> Jesus. So with the, with the eating disorder stuff, so with your mother... Do you, was this a result of, was she hypercritical? Was she hyper concerned with her own physical appearance? Or do you feel like it was more of just like a control thing for you or both? Both. My mom was, is actually still um, bulimic as well. Mm-hmm. I remember when I really, when my eating disorder got so bad, I had my eating disorder for 15 years and then it got so bad where I, I said to mom, I need help. I've got an eating disorder. And she was like, darling, all women occasionally throw up to keep their weight down. And I was like, okay, cool. But can I please go to rehab anyway? Because I'm not, I'm also like burning cigarettes in my arm and slicing myself with a Stanley knife. So I think I do need some assistance. (laughs) How old were you when the eating stuff started? I think if I look back, it started when my dad died. Mm -hmm. I think it was just my way of coping. 
but then I got I was overweight and you know when you're a teenager you don't want to be fat man you know I I just oh my childhood was revolting it just makes me teenage years revolting when I watch all these American high school films I'm always just like oh why the fuck can't my life why can my life be like that like even the dweebs or whoever everyone just looks so cool in American high schools in English it's just it's a whole different world English British but my experience sucked I know apparently so <laughs> I, I fantasize and romanticize the American version you know that's what we English people do yeah but if you had had that we wouldn't be talking right now yeah I, so true so mm-hmm. true and I have to say like so I was overweight and then when I finished school my mum I think it feels like my mum was always trying to get rid of me because then she sent me like backpacking around South America and it was there because I was like fat and I had a crew cut for a long time I don't know why I couldn't grow my hair out because it was so curly it would just look like a jufro so I just kept it short and bowl like uh-huh. so I went to South America <laughs> I grew out my hair I lost the weight I come I came back and I was literally the ugly duckling that turned into a swan and all these not all but some men at school that boys at school that were awful to me were literally asking me out because they didn't know who I was and I think <laughs> that feeling of power that I suddenly had became an addiction mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know and that's when the eating disorder just that's when I overexercised. I was addicted to diuretic diuretics yeah why does that sound like durex diuretics laxatives like diuretics diuretics thank you diuretic you know what I'm saying anyway I do but um my whole world revolved oh god it was when I just think about it now it's like weighing myself all the time I either starved or I purged just who lives like that a lot of people and I have (laughs) but one thing I have to say is I had a very bad eating disorder for 15 years that controlled my life, but I have completely overcome my eating disorder. And I know they say, you know, if you've had an eating disorder, you'll always have an eating disorder. I'll always have an eating disorder head, and I know when that head's talking, but I I can eat anything I want now. And for a long time, I knew if I ate a pizza, there was no way I would keep that in my stomach. So it's a miracle that I am where I am today. And I love my body the way it is, even with my weird boobs and, and the rest of it. I love it. It's me. It's who I am. And Jesus, I'm sorry, just saying it out loud. The self-acceptance I have now is mind-blowing. See, it's possible, guys. No, it really, really is. But, 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 but. You have to do the work, people. Like, it's not an overnight matter. And you have to persist and you have to, you have to dedicate and do it. Like, like mirror work with, you know, Louise Hay, mirror work. Like, I suggest this because I was coaching for a while, cancer survivors. Um, and I was holding energy circles at my house and helping people with issues like inner critics, self-love, all this stuff. And I would just say, listen, before you brush your teeth, look at yourself in the mirror. Don't look at the zits and the wrinkles. 
look at yourself, the person that survived everything and say, I love you, your name. I really love you exactly the way you are. I've said that to myself every day for the past seven years. And I have literally rewired my brain. I didn't believe it for the first six months, probably, realistically. But I kept doing it until it became my truth. So there is great power in persistence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sorry for that sermon. I loved it. <laughs> I think a lot of the times it's, it's like the, um, it's the commitment to it. I think a lot of us know that that shit will work, but God, to do it every day, it's hard. <laughs> it, see, for me now, it's non-negotiable. I wake up in the morning and I have my spiritual practice and it involves mirror work and it involves meditation. And yeah, I know everyone just rolls their eyes and like, oh, but it's like, if you've got time to do anything else, like how do you not have time for this? Because this is the shit that's going to ultimately make you happy. Mm-hmm. You know, like... It, I don't have, uh, I'm not married. I don't have a, a, a wonderful man in my life and I'm not the richest person in the world. And I don't particularly like living in London, but guess what? I'm still fucking happy that, that it's not about all that outside stuff. If you can do the work and nail the inside stuff. You're then going, as she's, yeah, man, you're laughing. So let's talk about your broken ass picker. Oh my God. Yeah. So when do you feel like you got the eating shit under control? I started that journey. I mean, I got in recovery in 2007. Um, I'm very old people, by the way, I look pretty young, but I'm very old. Um, I, and then it was a journey. It was just a journey. Obviously the first year or two is revolting Mm -hmm. because when you recover from an eating disorder and you haven't really had a metabolism for 15 years, you have to get fat first and you have to hand that over to your higher power and sit in the fat. And that was gruesome, but I did it. And then the fat came off and then it didn't come back. So. And then do you feel like it did, did you transition into men? No man in my eating disorder. I was, I was because I looked fucking great. I was, completely dead inside but my good I looked hot I was slaving in the gym for three or four hours I had abs of steel and I was I I was like a rock and roll chick I used to like dress in corsets with jeans and fuck off heels and when I walked into a room I demanded a tent yeah it was it, it honestly I know it sounds vain and arrogant but at those days it was like eeny, meeny, miny, mo. It was just like, <laughs> honestly, it was. And how the mighty have fallen now. It's like, geez, I can't get a date to save my life. But back then. No, you can. You're just maybe not into it. Well, I, I know who I am now. Back then, I was a queen chameleon. I knew what men wanted and I would just be it. But I, they never knew who I was. And they would fall in love with me, but they didn't have a clue who Saskia was I was just nor did you no nor did I at all that's why I just kept pretending it's like that film Runaway Bride with um Julia Roberts which I relate to so much because I was engaged five times and married twice and yes I always gave the rings back but there's that scene where he says to her like how do you like your eggs and she's like because with every with every partner 
she had her eggs the way they had them. So he gave her this table of every kind of omelette, fried egg, poached egg, boiled egg. For the first time in her life, she was like, what do I like? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where I've been the last couple of years is now I'm tired of wearing so many masks and pretending I'm somebody I'm not. I'm discovering why I actually like and don't like for the first time. Yes, which is such a common experience for adult children. Yeah. People pleasing so long. Like I just, I just thought my taste was exactly the same as my mum. But our taste couldn't be more bloody opposite if you tried. It's like her house is ultra modern. It's like, you know, it, there's nothing fucking cozy about it. And I was like, yeah, I love modern. I love modern. No, I don't. I like. I like boho. I like hippie style. I like all cozy and wood. And it's like be having the courage to say that because I thought I couldn't. I thought I just had to pretend and always be this other. It's so liberating. Everyone, that was those were appropriate uses of cozy, just so everybody knows. Did you hear that episode? Is, Did you no, hear when I so I had this guy? <laughs> I was messaging with this guy on it through. I met oh, him yes. And he kept saying cozy. And no, cozy here is lovely. Yeah. Nice word. Cozy. No, it's a nice word. It just was like weird to be using it so much. And I, you know, I'm just being judgmental, but I, I don't, he described living in San Francisco as cozy. And I take, I take issue with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that is weird. That, that wrong, wrong, wrong. People shooting up cozy. on the street. People taking shits on the street. I'm not quite sure <laughs> what's so cozy about that. <laughs> no, no, no. That's 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 not okay. I'm with you, hundred percent. That's turning lemons into lemonade. Shit into lemonade. <laughs> it's just being a bit of a dick. <laughs> so tell me about your first marriage. First marriage. Okay. This is how, God, it's cringy how superficial I was. I was so, I was so self-centered, but now I only realize I was this way because I was just had these titanium walls up and I wasn't letting anyone in. Um, so his name, he was really good looking and he was, he was so smitten on me and I was 30 and I was like, I should get married now. Um, and I knew I was going to get a divorce already. I sounds so <laughs> fucked up. But I just wanted to go to Vegas and get married with somebody. And Sasha was in love with me. His name was Sasha. And this is the only reason I agreed after our wedding. So we went to Vegas. We got married with Elvis. And then we got matching tattoos. And then we went to the, the rock, Hard Rock Cafe to, to hear Tesla play live. Because he was really into his rock music. And the only reason I got his name tattooed on me was because I knew we were going to get a divorce and I knew I only had to change one letter. And now I've got on the back of my neck, I've got the Aerosmith logo with my name in it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? He, he was lovely. I mean, he was so not my type. He was very, he was South African German, very linear, very strict, very not me because there's nothing linear about me. I'm all over the place and curvy and technicolor. And I treated him awfully, to be honest. And I just never should have married him. I should have never dated any of the men that I actually dated. But 
I was selfish and I just wanted to fill the hole in me. And I thought he loves me, he'll fill the hole in me. And then he didn't. And I think also, is it the, the, the addicted to excitement, right? Is a big one for me. So I wanted my life to be a Meg Ryan movie. This is what I'm realizing now. So every relationship I had, it was also, it was always the, the, the meet cute was always amazing. And the courtship was always exciting and, and, and movie like, and then we'd fall in love and he'd say, I love you. And then he proposed. And then it was kind of like when the credits and the movie would roll and then I'd be over it. And then I'd want another Meg Ryan movie. And then I'd go to the next relationship. And that was my life. So I kind of feel like, A, I sound incredibly vain and arrogant. B, <laughs> I'm the opposite to an adult child because a lot of adult ch children that I've heard in, in meetings and stuff are always, you know, I went out with these people that treated me like shit. But actually, I treated people like shit. I think it goes both ways. And there's also the opposite side of the laundry list. I know they say that leopards can't change their spots, but they're talking shit, dude, because I am, if you introduced me to the old me, I just wouldn't know who that person was because we have nothing in common, like nothing. Well, I will say that your version, and I always say this, and I don't know, would you consider yourself avoidant? Yes, emotionally, 100% the worst yeah. kind, yeah. I just yeah. feel like that is so much less painful than being an anxious attacher. <laughs> if I had to, if honestly, if I had to choose, I probably would stick with avoidance. Yes. Hell yeah. <laughs> Cause that, my life never got unmanageable. No one's ever dumped me because I never gave them the chance. I always left first always. And how do you feel about condiments? Are you, you can take them or leave them? I actually am a bit of a um, purist. I of don't course generally you are. Like you them. hear that all? You guys, this theory is proving true. You avoid it. Yeah. You either like no condiments or you like musters and us codependent, anxious attachers pour that fucking sauce on. <laughs> I'm still a codependent though. I'm definitely still yeah. a codependent, but not romantically. So if my mom's feeling sad, I feel sad. If my mom's feeling angry, my whole life is unmanageable. It's like my, I've got this tube connected to her, or, or at least I did, but then I fucking joined adult child, um, ACA. ACA. <gasps> like it's literally in within four or five months, my relationship with my mother transformed, dude. I kid you not. I do not care about her alcoholism anymore I don't pick at her I don't try to control her like I've just let it fucking go what uh, what do you think the secret sauce is there that it's not about them it's about us yeah you know we're so I spent my whole life blaming pointing fingers at my mum and now I just I have compassion for my mum my mum has the disease of alcoholism my mum had a revolting childhood. My mum didn't deliberately set out to push me out of a vagina and then think to herself, I'm going to try and fuck, fuck this up. child up. Yeah. She didn't do that. And I know, I know innately her soul, and I believe this of everyone, to be honest with you, because I'm such a hippie, but everyone's soul is pure. And it's just a, 
the conditioning and all the junk that covers our soul up, whether it be media, education, family, that, that shit. But underneath it all, my mum's got a pure heart. And all I see now is that she's in pain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just feel really sad for her because I have found a way out and I know that she's going to die never finding the way out. She's never going to stop drinking. What do you know about her childhood? Her mum was an alcoholic. Her mum was hectic. When she married my dad, um, my grandmother used to phone them like every two or three months. She'd phone randomly in the middle of the night, two or three in the morning and say, you abandoned me. I hate you. I'm killing myself tonight and it's your fault. Mm -hmm. And then my mum and my dad used to have to get in the car and go over there. And, you know, it was a cry for, I don't know. But finally she did it. Finally, she ended up killing herself. But, you know, she was an alcoholic. My grandfather was a manic depressive. My mum had no fucking hope, mm-hmm. you know. And on my dad's side, like, my dad was in Tereshenstadt prison camp in Czechoslovakia when he was one year, when he was one years old. Holy shit. What's the story there? Well, my, my father's side of the family were Dutch Jews and then and my grandfather was quite wealthy, but the Germans took everything, stuck them in the Holocaust. Um, so obviously my grandfather was relatively fucked up. Uh, he managed to keep a lot of people alive. There's a, a book written actually about my family in, in, in concentration camp. Really? What's it called? Um, Tutti's. It's called Tutti's Promise. And Tutti is my aunt, my brother's, my dad's sister who's still alive she's one of the last few remaining holocaust survivors that's fascinating um, i'll have to read that but I'm, who but wrote I mean, it talk about her my cousin my cousin she wrote it for for like teenagers to understand what happened in the holocaust um but that that trauma that ptsd mm-hmm. i mean that's going to carry over as well and so i think my father my father was just like this he was like a character in a movie. He was just excess. So there's another book. Um, there's a guy, you might know him. He's called Mark Rich. He's American. He was the biggest tax evader in US history. My father was his right-hand man in the UK. Mm. So there's a book written called The Billion Dollar Scam. And in it, there's a chapter about my dad and how he used to have like his briefcase custom made so he could travel the world with his stash of coke and all this stuff. That just made him, you know, some kind of gangster. I had no hope with his side. <laughs> and then combined with my mum's side, it was like, well, how other what how else was I gonna, gonna turn, turn out? out? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but can I just say in defense of adult children, I feel like it just means that we're not we're not beige, we're just very technicolor. With Technicolor shit shows. Yes, I agree. And proud of it. Yeah, man. Proud of it. I have to be honest, actually, this was a big deal doing this podcast with you because I have no shame talking about eating disorder. I have no shame about talking about most things, but I hate the term adult child. Couldn't they have come up with something just a bit more? Why, why Why do you not like that? 
it makes me sound like this adult child. It makes me sound like I'm incapable of being grown up, which is true, but I don't, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. It's that, I don't know what it is, but that's why I knew I had to do the podcast because I, <laughs> my name is Saskia and I am 100% an adult child. So just get the fuck over it. Yeah. I am not looking forward to dating and trying to explain that to somebody though. Well, I think that's why it's going to take a special soul for, for me as well. Well, I think that's actually easier to explain than the fact that I have heart shaped tattooed nipples now, which always scares men. And I actually have a heart on my vagina that says fuck forever as well, which is a really tough one to introduce to a man for the first time. Yeah. Impulsive tattoos, very bad, which I think is. I think that adult child is like the least of your worries. I think so too. Now I've thought about just like deflecting. Yeah. I think actually my, my vagina is probably the thing I should be concerned about. Yeah. Let's stop being in denial about your tattoos. (laughs) Yeah. I think you're right. But like the tattoos again, it was like, I was. I didn't think, I never thought anything through. It was all impulse. If I just, if I was drunk and I wanted to get a tattoo, I got a tattoo. And I always got a tattoo with every man I was in a relationship in. And I just would navigate cover-ups. It was like, didn't, I just didn't care. Well, then how is your whole body not covered? It is. It's just not covered from the waist down. (laughs) From the vagina down. Do you have any neck tats? Just only on the back? Uh Behind my ears. Okay. Well, at least you didn't tattoo your face. Yeah, thankfully. My ex-husband number two did. Your name? No, no, thankfully not. Wow, what a nice what a nice honeymoon activity. They're like, what'd you guys do? We went snorkeling, we got massages, and we got face tats. Yeah, it was just so sexy. Oh no bueno. Yeah, no. No bueno. Um, okay. So post cancer, who the hell is Saskia? When you think about hitting that bottom, this emotional bottom, do you do in reflection, is it more of like an adult child bottom or is it a post cancer bottom? Now, knowing what I know, it was a hundred percent. Oh, Fuck, I don't know. Adult child bottom. I don't think it had anything to do with cancer. I think it's post-trauma. I just know I had to hit that bottom. I had to go to that darkest, darkest night of the soul. So I, I always describe it like this. Like, you know, there's that place in the middle of the ocean. Like the ocean is so fast. There are sections of the ocean that nobody's even been to. And then if you go down, 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 it's so deep that no one has ever been down there and it's pitch black. And there are all kinds of creatures and treasures down there that nobody knows about. And I feel like when you hit your rock bottom, you're down there, but you can get really good juicy treasures so that when you come back to the surface, you bring that shit with you and you're like, you got so much out of it and it transforms you as a human being. And that's what I feel like happened like for the, after the cancer, when I sort of realized what had happened to me. You're such a writer <laughs> explaining it like that. <laughs> I don't know. Am I? 
Yeah. I love it. I love it. Um, so what was the aha? What was the aha moment? You see, it wasn't just one moment for me. I just did one step at a time every day. I just went on this. I just started walking the spiritual path. I learned meditation. I explored stuff. This is what I love about spirituality. It's just basically you get given an empty toolbox. Oh, my God, I'm doing the writer thing again, aren't I? Keep it going. Fuck. It's like you get given this empty toolbox and then you try all this stuff. Okay, I'm going to try meditation. Okay, I don't like that kind of meditation, but a guided meditation is pretty good. Okay, I'll stick that in my toolbox. Mirror work. Yeah, okay, I could do that. I'll stick that in my toolbox. You just try everything and then you make a toolbox that works for you and then you do it every day. And literally day by day, my life got brighter and brighter until I came to this place today where I like even just welling up just thinking about it like yesterday I spent the whole day in my garden with my dog by myself and I went to bed just thinking god I just had the most amazing day ever like who does that by themselves like I just appreciate everything I am just but there was no aha moment. And well, what was the spirituality know- gateway? I mean, like, what was it that kicked you into gear? Like, there must have been a moment where you're like, all right, I need to do some shit. I would either die because I didn't want to be alive. Um, and I had tried to commit suicide before, but it was either suicide or finding a way out. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Hoffman process. Uh-uh. So google it people um it's this top secret place and you go there for a week and they say it's the equivalent of 10 years of therapy where is it and it's actually based in america hoffman was american but now it's all over the world so i obviously went to it in the uk um you know my mum sent me there i think my by this stage my my mum always made me feel like oh god like everything's because of you and you're such a fuck up and and everything was because of me and she's like now yet again and yet again and look at you and everything so she carted me off to Hoffman and I think that was probably the beginning because Hoffman is the Hoffman process is is actually pretty damn incredible but what goes on in Hoffman stays in Hoffman so I can't tell anyone what happens in Hoffman Um, But I think that was the catalyst that sort of, and the 12 step program. I think when I went into rehab in 2007, learning the 12 steps was the beginning. But then I obviously went through a truckload of shit after that. But I think maybe that was the beginning. I don't know. Remember, I have no memory of not a lot. So I'm really bad when you ask me questions about the past because everything's such a blur and I have so much detachment from it. Mm-hmm. Like I went through some really quite horrible ordeals and I'm so detached from them. Was there a moment throughout your healing journey where you realized like, I'm going to be okay. Yeah, man. When I wrote that book, I mean, I wrote a book for fuck's sake. And you know what? Like before I even wrote the book, I had one dream. It was literally, I sent it to Hay House, actually, 
on I have in my my little meditation area I've got like hay house on my vision board that was it like I didn't care all I wanted in my life and this is so interesting be careful what you wish for I just wanted to be a hay house author that was it that's all I cared about and I and I made that happen but it wasn't quite as I hoped it would be um but the universe heard me I should have been a bit clearer and said I want to be a hay house author and be really successful and have loads of my books sold so that I can help cancer survivors. Um, but sadly it didn't work that way. Um, but I think when I achieved that, that's when I knew this shit works. Law of attraction works. It works people. It works. Um, but you, it's not a case of, Oh, I'm just going to dream about this. I don't know, mansion that I want and I'm going to stick a photo on the wall and I'm just going to dream about it and it'll happen. No, it's all about energy. Like you've got to go deeper than that. You've got to do the work. And I think the more, the more I did, it was just like, oh my God, my life just kept just, and you know what's so interesting is just, just finding your podcast, man. It just, it took me on to another higher level because I was just like, I thought I just can't even, I thought I was so innately wrong. And then just listening to all your podcast episodes, I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing this shame and guilt and broken and wrong shit anymore because it's just bullshit and I don't do it anymore. Well, it's not all rainbows and butterflies for you as much as it is most of the time, but I know that you had a tough day. I don't know when it was a week. No, but this is the thing I think people, this, yeah, sorry. No, no, but okay. I just wanted to, I just wanted you to share like, what are some of the limiting beliefs or laundry list traits, or what is it that you feel like, you know, what is some unfinished business for you? Look, I'm not happy all the time. Okay. I still struggle, but, but, but here's the beauty. Like now when I go through some emotion that's painful, like, I don't know, insecure, when I'm insecure, I'll sit there and go, wow, I'm feeling really insecure right now. And instead of trying to find something to numb it or distract myself, you sit with it. I just, I really sit with it, man. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that if you get a spiritual practice or do the things I've done, your life's going to be hearts and rainbows. My heart, my life is hearts and rainbows. And it's a lot of diarrhea and (laughs) vomit as well with the hearts and rainbows. But that's life. Yes. And it does, but the thing is, is those things don't make my life unmanageable. But yeah, I still have bad days a lot. I still have fear of failure. I still have this weird, toxic dance that I do with my mother. I, I still have not tried to get vulnerable romantically because I'm an avoidant. I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to. Um, I, the, the journey never ends. I've got so much healing to do, but I'm just really proud of how far I've come because I also think as adult children is we're a perfectionists and b we never pause to say wow I just handled that situation really fucking well Mm -hmm. well done me Mm -hmm. we don't we just notice the things we get wrong and I think with a lot of my fellow travelers I've met in ACA when they share with me I'm like did you hear what you just said like would the person you were a year ago been able to sit with that feeling? No. So why don't you give yourself some kudos? So I think I'm still feeling the same shit, but it, I, it just doesn't swallow me whole. whole. 
it just yeah. bites me mm-hmm. yeah. the relationship thing though is is I'm not gonna lie utterly terrifying that like I want it but I'm I don't know if I can do it yeah I think in many respects it's like kind of like the final frontier I don't know it, it never ends but it yeah. is it's like the big yeah man it's a, the big ticket item for us really big and especially the sex part for me because I refuse to ever have sex with anyone again without emotional intimacy first I've never done that I always fuck first and then dated after always always I've never done it the other way around and there's part of me that gets guilt and when I have tried dating I get guilt and shame after four or five dates that, that, that I have to put out. Mm-hmm. And so I end up sleeping with them and it just feels like I'm being raped because I don't want to be having sex with them, mm-hmm. which is why I was just like, well, I'm not ready to navigate this. Why am I giving, why am I still giving my body? Do you know what I mean? Like, so I say I'm happy, you know, I'm still got this, this is huge baggage for me, but I was still, I think the last time I, I don't know, maybe a year ago and I had sex with somebody cause I, I thought there was something wrong with me that I didn't want to, but like, that's going to take me some time, the sex thing, I think. And so then how did that, what happened after that point in that relationship? I I broke up with him Mm -hmm. every, I think I've tried dating in the past six years. I've tried dating three men. None of them lasted more than two weeks. (laughs) no longer two months two months because I we'd be dating for a while and then the sex thing would come and it just it felt revolting I didn't like it I have to feel so safe with somebody now to give them that part of me well that's amazing that one well that one you're able to even realize that you know that's huge yeah but am I am I strong enough to not give in to the people pleasing and do what I did with those guys. Do you know what I mean? Like it's people pleasing. It's fear of rejection. It's fear of abandonment. If I don't give them the sex, they're going to get bored and go. Do you know what I mean? It's all yeah. the old, it's the laundryness. It is. But at least the fact that you at least have that realization means that there's fucking hope, <laughs> you know? That's it, isn't it? It's awareness. Like now when my behavior kicks in, I, I, at least the awareness is key man. It's key. Yeah. And also just like it's sitting with, um, we always talk about how this is not an overnight process. Right. And it's just like really trusting the thing that I like to remind myself is like, okay, like I'm still getting, you know, I'm still getting ready for that person. And that person's still out there getting ready for me and remembering, I mean, there really hasn't been a single experience in my life or like in hindsight, I'm like, okay, you know, that's why that happened. And just kind of trusting in, in the bigger plan, but I get there too. And I think, I think I've reached a point now where, you know, it's that stupid cliche. You can't love your another person until you learn to love yourself. But I think I've come to the fact that if I meet somebody or I don't meet somebody now, I'm okay. And I know that means that, it, that I'm kind of opening that door now because it, I'm not dependent on it anymore. Well, I'll be completely honest. I mean, for me, like being in a relationship, getting married, having kids, I mean, that fear used to just consume me. It does not anymore. Like I'm okay, but I haven't reached a place where I feel like I'm going to be okay if that doesn't happen. 
Yeah, but our circumstances are so different. A, you're a lot younger than me. And B, I've been on anti-hormone drugs for breast cancer for 10 years. So basically, and this is what they don't tell you about going through breast cancer, is they took my hormones away. So how am I supposed to have a mojo? So it's very easy for me to say, I'll go without sex because I haven't had any hormones in my body. And also, I'm going to be 50 in two years. So it's, well, for me, it's not it's about diff- sex. It's like, it's about like getting married and having kids. And, and maybe that's okay. Like, I think that you hear that like, oh, once you get to a place where that doesn't matter anymore, then that's when you meet your person. But like, maybe it's okay to like, never get to that point. And maybe it, it you know what I mean? Like, maybe that's okay too. No, I, I completely agree because I think you said you used to be obsessed with it. You've let go of that obsession and now it's a healthy want. And I think, I think once it becomes just, I don't think you have to give up wanting it, but it's not your life depends on it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think my life used to depend on everything, but I was never enough ever. And that still kicks in all the time. It's just, it's just, just knowing what part of you is, 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 is saying what, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I love that in your book, when you talk about, you know, the, the ego and the soul and feeling where things are coming from and how do you explain it? Like the neck up, like that's ego and then neck down, that's the soul. Yeah. I, yeah. It, I had to find a way to not listen to that inner critic because the messages were just so constant all the time. So in the book, I basically say, you've got to give a name and a face to the ego because it's not you. It comes from a lifetime of what your parents said to you and the bullies at school said to you and your asshole person you dated said to you and media puts pressure on you. That's where that comes from. So my ego looks like Gollum from Lord of the Rings, you know, get my pretty. So every time it's like, I look in the mirror and I hear that, oh my God, you've put on weight, you look fat, look how old you look. I imagine Gollum sitting in my shoulder, twiddling my hair going, you look fat, you're ugly. And I'm just like, fuck you. And I just flick him off my shoulder. And I needed that weight because I think the problem is, is we believe the inner critic in our head is us saying those things to ourselves. And I don't, why on earth would you be so fucking horrible to yourself? You wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a nice segue. So I will provide more details later, but we're definitely going to be doing a workshop with Saskia on the inner critic. Um, I just want to say for your book. And like you said in the beginning, I mean, you guys, this book is really fucking good. I obviously have not experienced cancer. And I'll be honest, I was a little bit nervous. Like I was afraid to start reading it. And like, what if I didn't like it? (laughs) Because I hope you know that you, that I hope you know me well enough to know that like, if I didn't like your book, I wouldn't tell you that I just like your book just to tell you that you like your book. No, you're the most honest, candid person I know. So I trust you. So I, I just, there's so many good fucking tools in there. Um, I, I mean, I think it's an adult child kind of guide. Um, Me too. Now, now I've discovered adult children. I feel like you could just take the word cancer out because innately that's actually what it's. And we will be doing that and we will be doing that. So I just want to say, I highly recommend checking out this book. There's so many fucking good tools in there. Uh, I thought, and this is something that I need to do and I feel, and maybe we can even do a workshop around this, but the, the eulogy 
portion of it. Yeah, man. That, I mean, so writing a eulogy to your old self, I mean, just, just listening. I, you guys, she also reads her audiobook. So I'm like super obsessed with your voice. So I'm sure everybody else is too. So it's really nice to, to have it not be like, this is audible. And it's like a random dude reading it. So it's your voice, but yeah, listening to that part about writing a eulogy to your old self, I was getting my nails done and was making me feel some feels when I was listening to it. So yeah, man, it's a powerful exercise. Mm -hmm. And also I just wanted to say to the listeners also, that's like, I, you know, I, I, I didn't write this book to make money. And also the publisher makes all the money. I don't, but one in two people get cancer. There are a lot of people in the world and you probably have family members or friends and, and the struggle is a lot of the time after the treatment finishes. So also, you know, just think about those people also and just recommending it to them because it really fucking helped me, those tools. So I, I actually wrote it to genuinely help people. <laughs> so, yeah. You did. <laughs> and I guess that eulogy really is the reason that I'm not who I am now, who I was, because I said goodbye to her completely. Yeah, that was really beautiful. So, yeah. So I think that there's so much content in there. Um for like workshops too. So everybody, we will be doing some stuff together. Um, and yeah, I just think that you're a, a you're a gold mine of tools and wisdom and spirituality. And I just feel, um, I just know that our, that our paths crossed like for a reason. And, um, it's meeting people like you that <sighs> anytime I start going down the negativity hole or feel fear of failure or things aren't going to work out. It's like my higher power is just taking care of me. Um, and so I just feel so honored that I'll have to, I'll have to pull the message. If hopefully it's still on my phone, the one that you initially sent me, I'll have to play it in the intro. Oh, I would love you to do that. And I tell you, anytime you have any kind of downer negativity, I have such a fucking high regard for you. And I don't really have a high regard for many people. I love every, I love people, but there aren't many people that I look at and I just go, wow, you're like, you're an exceptional human being and you're technicolor and you're extraordinary and you were born to do this and you are going to make such a impact on the world, Andrea. And I cannot wait to watch every moment of it. Honestly, hundred mm-hmm. percent. You're helping so many people. I love you. I love you too. <clears throat> okay. So what do you want me to just put your Instagram in there? I'll put a link to your book. What else do you want? Anything? Do you want people to, how do you want people to reach you? Do you know, I'm still finding my way and who I am and what I'm doing. But for now, I would love just kindred spirits to connect with me on Instagram, saskia.lightstar. I'm happy with that. Say hi. I'm very friendly. Yeah. She, do- she doesn't. She doesn't bite hard. No, and I don't swallow whole, I promise. Oh, well, that sounded a bit sexual. I take that back. It's okay. We're used to it by now. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, you're welcome. I know you guys heard some some good shit in there. Thanks again to Saskia. Saskia is doing the Lord's work for me, guys. She is 
helping me out, redo my website, re- help me with a bunch of a bunch of shit that I am not very good at. And she is so really, really so grateful to have crossed paths with her. Um, check out the show notes for all of her shit next week. Not sure. Um, TBD. And that's about it. I'm trying to think. I'm, I'm sitting here in the closet recording. I feel like why I've been doing this for a year and, and I'm not quite sure why I have not um, set up like a more enjoyable or comfier area to record this. Like I literally am sitting on the floor. I got like my mic on one box my computer on the other one but they're like too short so I literally just sit here and I'm just like hunched over like quasimodo and very uncomfortable and um yeah I've been I've chosen to do that for the for the past year so maybe that could change soon uh hit a girl up you can email me at adult child podcast join the damn patreon please patreon.com slash adult child uh and that be it I'm going to see you guys next week for another amazing episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I promise.